Um, why don't you guys turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, if you have your Bible, which I hope you do. Man, I could call out so many people right now. It's all good, though. Um, I'm totally down for the Bible app. That's cool. I always prefer the paper Bible just because when I start getting boring, you're not tempted to go to Candy Crush, right? So if you guys have paper Bibles, I would always encourage you to bring them on Sunday mornings. All right, Luke 19. Um, so before we jump into the passage, I have a question for us. Um, do you guys think Christianity is exciting? That's great. That's great. Um, if somebody were to look at your life, going a little deeper here, um, would you say with the people around you go, man, the way that person follows Jesus is exciting and I want it. Let me flip the question. Do, does Christianity ever get boring? And why is that? So it's interesting if you were to ask people what they think about Christianity, we can get a lot of uh, different answers. Uh, being in youth ministry for so long, you know, a lot of times they hear like, oh, you know, Christianity is boring, it's no fun. Um, other people, when you ask them, you know, based on, you know, their past experiences with the church, whether it's, you know, past hurts or misunderstandings, uh, maybe they've just had a false portrayal of who Jesus is, or they haven't seen what the gospel can actually do in someone's life. So, so depending on where they're at, their experience with Christianity um, might be different, and it maybe doesn't seem that attractive to them, let alone exciting. And so I don't know where you are today in your walk with Jesus. I don't even know if you're a follower of Jesus. Um, but you're here, and um, what if I told you guys this, that following Jesus is actually the most exciting thing a person can do? Right? What if I told you that our Christian experience should be so transformative in our lives and the way that, that we see the world and see our place in the world that we should never actually get bored? Right, see, the world it offers exciting things all the time, exciting adventures, right? You can, any day of the week, any night of the week, you can jump into these adventures on places like Netflix, Paramount Plus, Peacock, right? However you get down. Um, what happens is a lot of these, these uh, adventures, these make-believe adventures, um, a lot of times they keep us from the adventure that, that we've actually been created for, and that is the mission of Christ and spreading his love and the gospel to the nations, and don't get me wrong, I could get down with some TV. I love movies. Just watched a movie last night. I like movies. Um, but I feel the world tries to feed us this narrative um, that we think is going to be exciting and fulfill us in a way, right? Go travel the world or climb the corporate ladder, get that job, whatever that looks like for you. And these are not bad things. I have done these things before. I like, actually enjoy them. Um, but as Christians, we can get sidetracked in our own pursuits sometimes, thinking they're going to bring us some kind of truth or fulfillment, but they actually leave us maybe a little as unfulfilled as before, and that's just because we're off-center. What if some of us have forgotten what it truly means to follow Jesus? What if some of us have forgotten what Jesus came to do and what he's called us to do? See, Christianity can get a bad rap when it's just about not saying bad words or going to church on Sundays, um, you know, or, or, or standing for conservative politics. Like, that can sound a little boring to some. Um, but when the world, you know, when the world sees people trying um, to just be good on their own, calling themselves Christians, but trying to be good on their own and their own morality, but they don't see the dynamics of the gospel that transforms someone from the inside out, and they see sometimes Christianity being misrepresented. And so today, this morning, as we look into the Word, we're going to see our King this Palm Sunday. We're going to see what He came to do. 
We're going to see his mission and what that means for us. So just moments before our humble king mounted the colt, rode through the streets of Jerusalem with people shouting, Hosanna, just a little before that in Luke 19, he actually shows people what type of king he is. So let's look down with me. Chapter 19, 1 through 10. Read along. It says this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and just a, an opportunity just to stop our busy and crazy lives and to focus on you, to focus on your word. And so we pray this morning that you would show us your heart, that your spirit would speak truth this morning, Lord, and that we would hear from you, Lord, and that our lives wouldn't stay the same. Lord, we pray that you would speak, your people are listening, be glorified this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So our first point is this, the king's mission is to the lost and to the outsider. So real talk, I think when I, we first started reading this, a lot of you guys heard the name Zacchaeus, and you're like, oh, okay, I know this story, right? Short little dude, couldn't see, right? So he went and climbed a tree, um, you know, and so some of you guys even know a song about Zacchaeus. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and uh, Oh, man, look at you guys go. There's a choir practice after church today for the Easter. No, okay, anyways, um, good job, gold stars. Uh, so as we read through this story, a lot of times we're tainted by our past experience with the story of Zacchaeus. We know it, we've heard it, we get it. But what I want to show us today is that for Jesus to stay at Zacchaeus' house is one of the most scandalous stories that we see in Scripture. See, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. You know, and, and you're like, yeah, we get it. Jesus, you know, hung out with tax collectors. He calls tax collectors. Matthew, one of his first disciples who wrote the book of Matthew, was a tax collector. So we get it. We understand. And so you're thinking, man, you know, all right, tax collectors go around. You owed $30 in taxes. They would charge you 50 Take a little 20 off the top. We'll go get a plate lunch, right, or a new shirt or something. And you're thinking, okay, like, it's, it's not, I mean, it's bad, but it's not horrible. Um, but let me tell you, friends, what tax collectors did went far beyond thievery. At the time that Jesus walked the earth, Rome had invaded uh, Israel and actually had ruled the known world all the way from England to India. I want you guys to think about this. Rome ruled from England to India. That is a large landmass. So how do you rule that much land? You have a really large army, right? And so um, to have this big army, um, they had to do a lot of very violent things. And now, so. Movies will like to portray Rome as this great empire. We've all probably seen movies about Rome. It's like, wow, Rome's so great. Um, but in the end, they were a ruthless and violent empire that conquered the world by slaughtering hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children. 
right? It was a it was a ruthless empire. And how do you fund this powerful, massive army that conquered most of the known world? How do you guys think they funded it? Taxes. There you go. Smart. So you guys are paying attention. All right. Taxes. And so what the Romans did, they're smart. They didn't send their little Roman tax collectors in there. No, they actually solicited this franchise that locals in those areas could work for Rome, collect taxes, take some for themselves, and make a big business and get rich off of it. And so they would have these local guys because, see, Romans wouldn't know where all the businesses are and all the monies are, but the locals did. And so they would hire these guys out. And these tax collectors uh, were in pursuit of money and wealth, and, but in the, in the process, they ended up betraying their own people. They betrayed their country. They were traitors, right? They, they betrayed their friends. They lost their friends, and they were cut off from their family. They were working for the enemy, and they were funding the Roman occupancy in Israel. And see, what happens when Rome takes over an area is that the Roman soldiers had complete freedom in that area. So they could go and they would treat the natives very harshly. They could walk into any home and take whatever they wanted, sometimes whoever, whoever they wanted, right? It was a nasty business. And the tax collectors are the ones who are funding this kind of occupancy in Israel. And so here we have Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Right, but he wasn't just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector, meaning he would have oversaw this whole region, Jericho, one of the main three trade hubs that things had to come through to get taxed. He oversaw it. So he was, a, he was at the top of this ladder, made a lot of money, and went overcharge, and he built this empire of scandal. And though Zacchaeus was a wee little man, he had a big position which wielded a lot of power. But I kind of see him as like the first century godfather Scarface. Like he was the, the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel and was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the term. All right, so like here in Hawaii, it'd be like he ran the Hawaii underground. He could take any possession of anything he wanted. He was backed by the governor, funded by our taxes with the chief of police on his payroll. Right, this is this kind of man, not a likely candidate for the kingdom. Powerful, rich, but had done a lot of dark things to get there. And so because of his position, and he was such a notable sinner, the Jewish people would have, have uh, considered him unclean. If you were a tax collector to the Jewish people, you were unclean, right? And so um, what happened was they would be oppressing the people of God. They were the enemies of Israel. And so they were cast out of Jewish society, not allowed to participate in Jewish life. And so ironically, Zacchaeus' name means clean, innocent, pure, and righteous which we see Jesus do later, but we're not there yet. Zacchaeus would have been cut off from all of the social relationships, only hanging out with other tax collectors and sinners. He couldn't go to the temple to make sacrifices. He'd be cut off from synagogue life and cut off from God by the religious of his day. If Zacchaeus was coming down the road, people would probably try to avoid eye contact, but there'd be a lot of murmuring. Here comes Zacchaeus, that traitor, that no good guy. There'd be other words that they would use that people would distance themselves and he would be disliked. He would be hated among his people. And here we have King Jesus, the son of God, rolling into Jericho. And what does he do? See, Jericho was this big, illustrious city full of businesses and enterprises. It grew palm trees and had this big palm tree 
business. So the, ro the, the roads would be lined with palm trees, and it would be this massive empire that a lot of people, the, the royalty of Israel would come and have their vacations here. Foreign royalty would come. The elite would come and spend time here because of all the businesses, enterprises, and entertainment. There were 12,000 priests that were stationed here in Jericho because of its proximity to Jerusalem. It was a big town. It was a powerful town, right? And so Jesus now on mission is coming through into this town of power. What does he do? Days away from his triumphal entry, days away from the cross, and he makes some of his final statements to the world. In one of his final moments, people are saying, why did you come? So who do we see him go to when he comes into Jericho? Who does he go to? To the governor? To the mayor? To someone with influence that could help Jesus' mission? To one of the 12,000 priests who were stationed there that have been serving faithfully year after year? This is the Son of God. All eyes are on him. The whole world is watching, looking at Jesus. If you are the king, show us what you're like. People would be asking, where is he going to stay? Whose house is he going to stay at? Who is going to have the honor of hosting the Messiah in their home? All eyes are watching. And so while the crowd is thinking this, one of the most hated and despised sinner is sitting in a tree trying to get a glimpse of this prophesied Messiah. The crowds wouldn't let him see. So this tax collector who had power and wealth and position who caught wind of the Savior and the King coming through town, had to set aside his pride and his position and become like a child and climb a tree, thinking to himself, could this truly be the Savior? I just want to get a look. Could he be the answer to this longing inside that I don't understand? Could it be the Savior from this life that I've been trapped in that doesn't sit well with my soul? We don't know what he's thinking, but we know this, that when Jesus walked by, all the world watching, he stopped at the tree of this sinner. He stopped at the tree of this outsider, the one that has been cast aside by the world, cast aside by the religious of his day. The one that not even the lowest class Jew would, would give their time for, let alone a priest. Here we have the Son of God, coming and he looks up at the sinner and he calls him by name Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I know you. I know what you've done. I know your past. I know you don't think you're worthy, but I am on my way to the cross to make you worthy. Zacchaeus, I know you. You don't know me, but I know you. I've actually chosen you before the foundation of the world to be mine. And your mess and your past, I'm going to take care of that. The things that you're going to that, that don't fulfill or satisfy, I'm going to be that for you, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your home tonight. And what I hope that we see is that we were all once this sinner sitting in a tree in need of a Savior. And Jesus called us by name, and he saved us. Do we see our King? Today, most of you guys are wanting to hear about Jesus riding on a donkey and people screaming Hosanna and, you know, wanting to make Jesus king. But I don't want to miss the fact that they didn't actually know who their king was. Are the same people who would be screaming Hosanna would days later be screaming crucify him because they didn't understand their king. They thought he was coming to conquer Rome, but he was coming to conquer hearts and restore them back to what they were intended for. He was coming to conquer sin and death. This King Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. That is what we see in this story. And so we see this mission dumbfound 
the world, thinking that this other religious ruler, this Jesus, would be like everybody else that came before him, who pushed aside people like Zacchaeus, who pushed aside the sick, who pushed aside the outcast, who pushed aside the sinner. But instead, Jesus, he goes and heals the sick. He goes to the outcast and forgives sinners and makes them new. See, our king going after a sinner, seeking him in a tree, which shows us that the king's mission is to those who are seeking Look down with me in verse 3. It says this, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was, was unable to because of the crowd, for he was in small stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. All right. So I'm going to ask you guys a question that you guys can, you know, should be honest about. Um, has anybody here ever lost their children? Anyone ever lost their children? It's okay. It's, it's church. It's all right. Jesus forgives all sins. Yes. Okay. Um, so we were at our friend's house, and our boys were playing with our friend's uh, kids, and they are at the playground. And so the house is right here, and literally, like, down the sidewalk is a playground. Like, you can look out the back and see it, okay? And so they're playing over there. We're in the house. We're talking. And so the kids are done playing, and they run back into the house, and, you know, and they're tired or whatever. But then all of a sudden, I realize that we're, we're missing one right? Um, and uh, we're missing the little guy. My youngest, Zechariah, is not there. I'm like, okay. And he's a little guy. but it was the wrong house and so he panicked and, and he realized like i'm in the wrong house and he realized he was lost and it wasn't until he heard his name that he came back to his father see before he heard me yelling he was just lost he knew something wasn't right he could feel it but didn't know where to go and it wasn't until he heard his name coming from his father that he knew where to go See, not everyone who was lost is like Zechariah. He knew he was lost, but there's some people who were lost, but they don't want to admit they're lost, right? Um, you know, I don't know if you guys, anyone ever been traveling and you're like in charge of directions and didn't want to admit you're lost? Yeah, so there was this time we were in Italy and we we're just traveling around. There were many times where 
I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know really where we are, you know, and, um, but just kind of kept that to myself because I got to keep up, like, I'm the husband, father, I'm like, I don't know, I know where I'm going, you know, and so my wife would be like, uh, do you know where we're going, you know, and there'd be times where I'd be like, yeah, totally, in my mind, I'm like convincing myself, yeah, I, I, I know, I know where I'm going, but I'm lost, and I don't want to admit it, and so I, would be grateful when my wife would convince us to ask somebody, hey, which direction is this, you know? And so um, it was nice. Um, and so there's, there's, there's those people, right? Some people who are lost don't want to admit they're lost, right? Instead, you know, they're inside, they're seeking, but they're just not telling anybody. And they have this great appearance on the outside, like everything's fine, but inside they're subtly freaking out and they're seeking to be found. They're seeking to find their way. And so here we have Zacchaeus, who from the outside appearance seemed to have a lot of things people strive for, money, power, position. Zacchaeus was ballin', like he could afford some nice camels, some nice horses, some nice Gucci slippers, right? He was the man, like if, if MTV Cribs came through Jericho, he'd be on it, like he's this guy. And, um, and he had plenty of money, and doesn't money buy you happiness, right? That's what they tell you, right? When money's flowing, friends are flowing, good times are flowing, but here's the thing. People use money and things money can get you to really to numb the insecurity that creeps up in all people about their value, their worth, and their purpose. Or you can just buy yourself happiness. You can afford the things that keep you distracted from dealing with the deeper heart issues. People do this in different ways. We try to cover up things with, you know, distractions, you know, like endlessly streaming our favorite show or gaming or scrolling, gossiping, spending, eating, indulging yourself in whatever hobby or pleasure you have, right? Zacchaeus did it with wealth, power, and position. And what I want us to see is that it, though it definitely seems like a guy like Zacchaeus would have it made in the shade because of the amount of money he's making from Rome, we see this man, Zacchaeus, actually seeking after Jesus. But why would he be seeking if he had everything he wanted? And yes, we know it's Jesus who comes after the lost and the outsider, but we forget that most of the time when people are lost, they're trying to find their way. When people feel like they're on the outside, they're usually trying to find their way inside. And those who were trapped in sin and feel the burden and weight of that in their life would probably love to be forgiven and cleansed. They just don't know how. They don't know how to process the feeling that sin causes in their life. And so here's the truth, that every lost person is seeking. Whether it was like my son Zechariah, who was desperately trying to be found, or like the stubborn person who doesn't want to admit they're lost and, and looks like they have it all together, they're all seeking. People can cover up pretty good. Zacchaeus did it with his money and power. But you don't think getting cut off from his family hurt a little bit? You don't think being cut off from his friends and the people who he grew up with hurt? Cut off from his culture? The only connection that he knew to God? You don't think this unsettled Zacchaeus just a little? Whereas a young Jewish boy, he would grow up hearing about Yahweh, the Lord, hearing about the prophesied Messiah. But when the trials of life came, he stumbled. That when the God-sized longings of his heart pushed him into places that he didn't think he would go, and he tried to find that in all the wrong places that led him down a road that led him to even more lostness. And so here's my point, is that everyone who hasn't been found by Christ and that's lost is seeking, whether they know it or not. Everyone is seeking. 
And there are people in our lives that have put up such good defenses. I can imagine Zacchaeus sitting at a party and everyone looking at him, this powerful man, like, man, he's untouchable, he's unreachable, you know, he's built this big empire, he's, he must be happy. See, there are people in our lives who have built up their kingdoms, they've built up their wealth, their persona, this, this image of themselves, and they're projecting it out to the world, hoping that people won't see past that into the insecurity that lies within everyone whose soul hasn't been reunited to the Creator. So there's a reason why atheists can sometimes fight tooth and nail to prove their points, because if they're wrong, they actually have to deal with the unsettled feeling within every soul that is yet to be found. It's easier to write off Christianity so we can continue to numb that with knowledge, money, possessions, or whatever. But we have to know that everyone is seeking, everyone is looking for the answer, everyone is looking for the truth, and we have the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ. And what I hope we see from this story is that for many people, all they need to do is to hear their name being called from the Father. They need to hear their name being called. They realize that they're in a house they don't want to be in, but they don't know where to go, and they're waiting for their father, father to call them by name. Zacchaeus. Who does God use on this earth to call out to people? Oh, yeah, his people. That's us. Right? How many people in our lives are seeking, waiting for their name to be called, waiting to be engaged with love? And I know a lot, some of us here, a lot of us here have reached out and engaged our coworkers. We've engaged family members and our friends, and we've hit wall after wall, argument after argument. I want to propose to you to continue to pray for them and to continue to pursue them like Jesus did and have a meal with them and love them. See, let them see Christ in you. Let them see that you accept them even though you don't agree with them. See, it's Christ's love and acceptance through a meal that came before Zacchaeus' declaration of his wrongdoings and him wanting to be made right. And see, so many times as Christians, we actually stand back and we're waiting for people to clean up their lives. We're waiting for people's lives to agree with us or be more similar looking to our lives before we go to them. And we'll actually stand back and we'll judge the world. We'll push them further away because of their differences, because of their sin, because of their lostness. And like the religious rulers of Zacchaeus' day, we push them aside. See, Zacchaeus was seeking. He was trying to see Jesus but wasn't able to because of the crowd. And we know that's because he was short, right? But I'm sure he got a couple elbows, right? And verse 7 says that when they saw Jesus go to be with Zacchaeus, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. See, here's the part that breaks my heart, that so many times I talk to people about Jesus, and you know what they say? Like, we're not upset with Jesus. We're just not a big fan of the church, a big fan of his people. Now, I know there's a lot of wrong things with that statement, and I'm not here to debate all those things, but I have to question, what would Jesus think that instead of going after those who were lost, him seeing the church, seeing Christians, pointing their fingers at the world, and judging them, and criticizing them, and pushing them away further into lostness, because they're lost. Jesus went and he spent time with prostitutes, drunks, tax collectors, sinners. But what happened if we started hanging out with these kind of characters? We'd probably be judged. People would probably talk behind our backs. You went to go spend time with who? See, the people here in verse 7 thought they knew God. Right? They had memorized parts of the Torah, the Old Testament. Right? They, they, they go to synagogue. They do everything they need to do. They, they, they sacrifice at the temple. They don't do certain things. They act a certain way in front of certain people. But inside, they're judging. They're grumbling. 
They're looking down at the lost in this world. And the sad part is we can do the same thing and judge and condemn the world, the liberals, the LGBTQ community, the Muslim community, the homeless, the town drunks, the druggies, our atheist family members who we always argue with. But we have to realize they don't have Jesus. They're lost. And some of them are waiting to hear their name called by the Father. And it blows my mind when Christians judge the world for being the world. They yell and they scream hatred towards people who are far from God. Now, I'm not saying we condone what they're doing or what they're saying. I'm saying that we can stand for truth and for justice and at the same time have a meal with someone who's far from God. See, Jesus wasn't condoning the drunkenness. He wasn't condoning the prostitution. He wasn't condoning the extortion. No, he was confronting it with truth in love. He confronted it with a meal, which was the first century way of saying, I accept you. And sometimes Christians will get the truth part right, but forget the love part. Jesus was embodied, truth embodied, and love embodied. So when we, he engaged people, he engaged in love and truth, but he didn't accept their behavior that was opposed to God. But he accepted them because they were created in the image of God. And he was going to the cross to make a way for them to know the love of God. It wasn't based on their performance or their past mistakes or triumphs, but based on the love and the grace that he was about to demonstrate on the cross and the resurrection. These are the people that Jesus came for, sinners in need of a Savior, which baffle religious people who subconsciously are trying to save themselves. Do we forget that our king is called the friend of sinners? Have we forgotten that we were all once lost? Now, I don't care if you were born in a Christian home. I don't care if you were raised in the church or have a radical background. Every single one of us was a sinner sitting in a tree, and Jesus came for us. He pursued us. And because of his grace and mercy, nothing in our own merit, we've received salvation and new life. We were under wrath. We were headed to hell. And Jesus' grace and mercy stepped in. He took our place so we can be accepted and forgiven of our sins. So we need to ask ourselves today, how can we, like Jesus, have an understand that everyone is seeking and going to people in their lostness and accepting them as a person, not their behavior or their sin, but as a person created in the image of God. And as they see the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ in us, that witness, along with the gospel, we would see people turn to Christ. See, the scary thing is that the people in verse 7 were just as lost as Zacchaeus, if not more. The scariest place to be is under the roof of God with the people of God, but being lost, not understanding the, the heart of God. You see, the gospel is God and his grace coming after us in the person of Christ, offering forgiveness, not based on anything we've done, but based completely upon his grace and his goodness alone. We were sitting in a tree, and he comes and he makes his home with us. And when we experience that type of love and grace and forgiveness, then we are restored. This leads to repentance of sin. This leads to, to, to restoration in our relationships. And we go, and then we give our time and our money to the poor time and our money to those in need. And we go to those who we've offended, who, who we've sinned against, and we make amends. This is what we see in Zacchaeus' life. See, the Christian life flows from the grace in the gospel. It is not an attempt to earn God's grace by keeping the law. And I fear because of the church's witness in many parts of this country and the world, we have somehow communicated that people need to clean up before they come to Christ. And we may not say it, but we've communicated it to them by how we treat them, by how we act, by how we, we, we distance ourselves from them. 
how we don't engage them, how we don't have meals with them, because they're too different. They're too lost. Now, we need to have wisdom here. We need to have wisdom as a family, wisdom as a couple, wisdom as a person, and how to engage people. We're not yoking ourselves with unbelievers. Some of you guys have been, I'm down to hang out at the bars this weekend, right? Like, no, it's like we, we need to realize that Jesus was very intentional and he was always on mission. A lot of you guys are already in relationships with people who are far from God. And I'm not saying just get buddy-buddy with them and never bring up Jesus. I'm saying let them see Christ in you. Let them see the love and the grace that you've received in you, but make sure you're bringing truth with that, right? Jesus was very purposed, and so we need to have that same kind of intentionality. Jesus said on the night before he went to the cross, he prayed to the Father on our behalf in John chapter 17. He said this, Lord, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And so as followers of Christ, we realize that the king's mission becomes our mission. Look back down with me, verse 5. It says this. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. See, earlier today I was talking, I was, I was asking, Has our Christianity become boring? Right, and what I'm trying to present to you is that when Jesus comes and he makes his home with you, your life should never be boring again. So we see the people in verse 7, the ones who are grumbling, saying, how dare Jesus go and eat a meal with a sinner? See, if you're on mission with Jesus, even something as normal as eating a meal can be exciting. Right? Do any of you guys still uh, eat dinner around the dinner table every night with your family? Who rocks on? Who's doing that? Every night. It's uncommon. Every night, dinner time around the table. Right? It's not the most common thing, but in the Jewish world, it was very common. I know in our house, we try to do that, um, you know, and I don't know if you guys do it. It probably lasts, you know, like 15, 30 minutes. We have slow eaters in our house. I don't know if you like kids who eat like super slow. Um, it can take a little bit longer. But we, we try to keep that um, thing going on. In the Jewish home, it, it was their night. The, the, the dinner meal was their whole night. It was actually the center of family life. See, they didn't have electricity, right? So when dinner was over, everybody went to bed, right? Not like, hey, what do we got to catch up on on our, our shows? Or, you know, everyone goes to their room and on their, you know, device of choice and just scrolls till they pass out, right? They didn't, they didn't have that um, going on. They had uh, this meal, and it was lively, and it lasted all night, and then they went to bed. And so, the, so this was the center of family life. So when you would invite somebody into that, when you'd have a meal with somebody, it's saying that you lovingly accept them, you almost see them as family, and you're willing to be in a relationship with them. And so here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just having a meal with Zacchaeus. It says, that, hey, I must stay at your house, which that language actually means he was going to stay the night. Right? He wasn't just going to maybe stay one night. He could stay two nights. He could stay two weeks. We don't know. But he was coming to live with Zacchaeus. And so what we see here in this passage is that when we welcome Jesus into the center of our lives and we let him live with us, when that happens, 
Our lives are transformed and changed, and the king's mission becomes our mission. See, that's what we see with Zacchaeus. See, it's not hanging out with Jesus just on Sundays, right? But it's letting him be at the, the center of your life, letting him come and make his home inside you, where every single part of your life you've surrendered to him. You've let him be at the center and come into everything. He now lives with you. Every nook and cranny of our life, we're like, Lord, come in. I think sometimes we'll go like, Lord, you can come in, but oh, oh don't look in that room. Just keep that door closed. Oh, 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 don't look in that cupboard. Don't look in that cupboard. Oh, no, not that drawer. Oh, not that, no, not my browser history, Lord. Like, and there's these things in our life that we let Jesus in, but we don't let him in all the way. There are other things that we allow to slowly drift into the center of our lives. And when other things become the center of our lives, we actually are more about that mission in our lives than anything else. We know what that could look like. Zacchaeus let him all in. And from that powerful transformation of his presence and his loving acceptance, his life is changed. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, verse 8, Behold, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus is like, salvation has come to this home. See, it's not just Jesus making Zacchaeus a good person. Christianity is not about becoming a good person. It's about being made new and that your whole life's orientation has changed. See, we see Zacchaeus confess his sin. I've defrauded people. I've stolen. See, this radical acceptance leads to radical repentance, turning, right? Repentance is turning directions. It's actually even clearer, a changing of mind. And we see Zacchaeus' mind being renewed and his life being repurposed. Zacchaeus didn't have to give all of his money to the poor. He could have just given back what he stole. But he's saying, half of what I own, I'm going to give to the poor, which is way above any standard of the law. Right? His center changed. Money was not the center anymore. God was. Money was not his God anymore. The living God was. He's saying, I'm not just going to return what I stole. I'm going to give four times what I've taken. Wait, God loves me? He wants to use me? See, life wasn't about Zacchaeus anymore. It was about Jesus. It was about Jesus' mission to reach others. He leveraged his position, his possessions, and his power to bring forward the kingdom of heaven. See, Zacchaeus realized that what he wanted from money, money would never give him. Satisfaction, security, love, and acceptance, these things cannot be found in a dollar sign. They can't be found in worldly relationships or that fleeting pleasure the world offers you. It's the only place that can be found is a relationship with Jesus Christ having your eternity secured in heaven, and a present tense understanding of a relationship with God now. And Jesus says, come, let's go on mission together. When Christ is at the center of your life, your life reorients around his mission. So what is that? Well, he tells us in verse 10. He says, the Son of Man has come to save and seek that which was lost. I would say that if our Christianity is boring... Right, and our following Jesus is boring, that's on us. Because if we truly stepped into this, like if we really lived this out, our lives would be the most exciting lives in the neighborhood. Christ has invited us into this all-consuming, worldwide, redemptive mission to see the lost found, to see sinners saved, and to engage the world that's seeking for truth and bring them the truth in Jesus Christ. Days before the crowd would cry out, Hosanna to their newfound king, the king is showing what he came to do. And for each one of us, we've been invited into this mission from the very first moment that we've received him. 
that God has placed people all around you and they're seeking. Nobody in your life is there by chance. God has set the lines of man and he has set us in our spheres of influence to go and save and seek that which is lost. So what holds us back from living life on mission with our king? What holds us back? It's the cost. It's the cost. There's a cost in following Jesus and being a part of what he's doing in this world. Zacchaeus, it was his position, his power, his money. See, interestingly, a couple chapters earlier in Luke, there was a rich young ruler who had a similar problem. And Jesus says, man, you're doing great, but one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. See, this man had made his money and his power his God, and he wasn't, allowed, he wasn't able to give up that idol and follow Jesus. And so we see him leave and walk away sad. But we see a very different story here. Jesus said it's, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But here we see the camel go through the eye of the needle. We see a rich man get saved because nothing is impossible with God. So we know that security, power, control, these things that we want, that we like, that Zacchaeus worship, they can have sway in our lives. But the moment that Zacchaeus realized that God came to save him and wants to save others, right? He, there's this moment that he shifted. He's like, man, there's so many others that don't know God. They don't know the eternal perspective of what Jesus is doing in this world. So what was money? What was his wealth? Nothing in comparison to the riches found in Christ and the glory to be found in the gospel and the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. For Zacchaeus, his king's mission became his mission. And we can be so consumed with the mission of building up our kingdoms. People can be so consumed with building up the legacies of wealth and passing the stuff on. Again, not bad, but we can miss passing on the legacy of Christ. Money isn't bad. Zacchaeus still had money. He was a very rich man. But he realized that God had given him this money to steward well for the glory of God and for the furtherance of his kingdom to see the lost found. I mean, you know what's hard for me? Why it's hard for me to walk out on mission? I'm not rich. Um, it's, it's I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish with my time. I'm busy. I have things going on that I want to do that I think that are really important. And so to go and actually seek and engage people in this way, it's going to cost me. I'm going to have to sacrifice some things in my life. I'm going to have to reorient some things in my life. I'm going to have to, and, and I'm going to have to start with my family. I've been talking to my wife about this, how I'm super challenged by this message. <laughs> and, and, I, and, that, that, and it needs to start with us. It needs to start with my family. I need to seek just to reach my own family and then steward them and disciple them, which can be difficult enough. But from there, what, what part of that, in that just chaos of what family is, we walk forward and say, how can we engage people who are far from God and close to us? What would happen if we engaged our world and our communities and the people in our lives with this kind of radical love? See, for the first century church, what happened was when the Spirit poured out, right, there was this radical spirit of generosity where people realized that the things they'd been given were for God's glory and for the kingdom. And so they were making sure that nobody had need. Right? So they're giving their things, and, and don't get me wrong, we need to have wisdom and steward what you've been given well. But this radical generosity accompanied with the gospel and the power of God displayed in miracles and changed lives led to them turning the world upside down. That's what scripture says. 
And it's this kind of sacrificial love, this kind of engagement of the lost, people sacrificing their lives for the good of others, the gospel going forth. This actually was, was one of the things that helped tear down the great empire of Rome. See, the power of gospel was one of the things that helped lead to the demise of Rome because the gospel leveled the playing field, saying that we're all in need of grace. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of salvation. There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. There weren't any person of greater value, and that God came for all people groups. See, the greatest love ever known to man helped take down the greatest empire ever known to man. Caesar wasn't king. Jesus is king. And his kingdom is marked by the life-giving model he demonstrated on the cross. And so from there, his people went out on that mission into the world and turned it upside down. And guess what, church? That's still happening today. That mantle, that mission has now been given to us. And I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're living on mission. Maybe you're doing this. You're engaging people. You're having meals with people. You're, reach, you're, you're reaching out, and life's exciting. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you came in today, and you feel like you're kind of in a rut. You're just going through the motions. You love God. You love the church. You even care for the lost, but you know there's more, and Christ is calling you to engage. I know some of you guys came in here today, and you're like, man, I'm just struggling to follow Jesus. I'm struggling in my marriage. There's this sin habit I cannot kick. And I want to encourage you guys that Jesus never meant for us just to, to do sin management and deal with our sin and keep fighting and just trying to, to be a better person and follow Jesus. And once we figure that out, then we can go on mission for Christ. No, that Christ actually says, no, it's as you're following me out into mission that I'm actually going to heal a lot of that stuff. See, if I'm just here just trying to manage my sin all day, I'm staying here, I'm looking at my sin, but it says I turn and look to Christ and what he's doing in the world and follow him outwardly toward others, that stuff's not really on my mind anymore. And God uses mission to heal and to show us his presence. And man, if I'm on mission, I always ask people, man, if, when you're on a mission trip, how much do you struggle with the same sins you do at home? Not much. Why? Well, because I'm on a mission trip. Yeah, because you're so focused on what God's doing around you. You're so forward thinking about what Jesus wants to do in your life. You're not thinking about all that mess. And if we can just get that mentality, we can step out and see who and what Christ is calling us to engage in. To step out and realize that everyone is seeking. You've been placed where you're at on purpose for a purpose to reach out to them, to love them, to have a meal with them, to share the gospel with them. And that we don't give up at the first defense or the first wall that they throw up, but we continue to ask God, would you enter into their lives? Would you save them? Would you use us as instruments in our community and to the lost in our lives to seek and to save them? That you would do that, Lord. Let me tell you this. If you live this way, following Jesus will never be boring. Maybe you're here and you're still seeking and you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus. Today, hear the Father's voice calling you by name, that he loves you, that you're not here by chance, that he's reaching out to you. He wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you the promise of eternity and heaven with him. But there are things in your life that you need to turn from and you need to turn to Jesus and trust in him I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're hearing all this and you're like, I, I want a relationship with Jesus, but I'm not there yet, don't leave this room without talking to somebody. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, what would happen today if we all went out and purposed ourselves to seek after those who are lost in our lives? 
with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel? What would happen? So I want to challenge each of us to be praying about someone or some people that we can invite over for dinner. Maybe it's a lunch, but for the purpose of building a relationship that would lead to a gospel conversation. That sometime within the next two to three weeks, we would step out in faith on mission with King Jesus in this way. Hey, maybe it's this week. I mean, it is Easter week, right? What a time. And so today, let us ask God to help us to orient our lives, to reorient our lives around his mission. Because when Jesus comes into the center of our lives, the king's mission becomes our mission. Amen?